My name's Evan O'Riordan from the Colonel Brewery in London. Anything else? And can you just, history of the brewery? Can you give us a little, uh, yeah, like a sort of potted history of how you ended up here? In my previous life, I used to work for Neil's Yard Dairy selling cheese. And I used to run one of their shops in Covent Garden. And then I worked running a cheese stall for some friends selling carefully in the borough market. Um, and a long time ago, Neil's Yard uh, had a customer in the States, in New York and Lower East Side, Manhattan, a big organic supermarket called Whole Foods, who um, needed some help setting up a cheese room. In, New York, so I got sent over there for a couple of weeks to help teach them how to look after and sell cheese, which wasn't wasn't the worst gig in the world. <laughs> um, and while I was over there, um, I discovered beer. So I'd be working with it the guys every day. Hadn't been your thing before then. Well, no, I, but I, I grew up drinking Guinness. And, okay. You know, moved over here and would drink real ales. And never really was into lager in any way, shape, or form. But you know, being you know, the, the Irish and the English have a particular sociable way of drinking and pubs that, you know, you can inhabit that whole world for your entire life and be drunk most of it, but not necessarily have a clue what it is you're drinking. Mm -hmm. Which is strange because, you know, you'd be working... If you work in food, then, for example, you probably know a little bit about wine, you know. I mean, people would take care to tell mm -hmm. you, well, that Cabernet from there is going to be different from that one. And, you know, you know the different grape varieties, you'd know what the different characteristics from an Australian Shiraz versus, you know, something mm -hmm. from France. And, even just little bits, you know, and then names. You'd recognise a few famous names, things like that. I mean, I suppose in beer you'd recognise a few names, but, but there was never the same attention paid to beer, for example, no. as to wine or to cheese. You know, when I was working with cheese, I'd know that, you know, we'd know the farmer's name, we'd know what animals it came from, you know, the feed they were given, why the milk is like this, why this milk needs to be like this to make this cheese, the historical imports, all these things. And I was kind of working with cheese in New York, and I'd, the guys I was working with just take me to the local bar, 40 taps, and they'd go, well, this beer is made to this recipe for this reason by this man, and these are the hops he uses. And it was like, well, okay, I understand. My, my thought process is already could follow that line of thinking, mm. but I'd never had anything fill in those beer gaps before. So firstly, it was the, the culture surrounding it, which made beer important, but also you obviously had the beers that were worth paying attention mm. to. So one of those guys, actually, Jonah, who works here now, who was one of the guys who introduced me okay. to here then okay. in the States. So, uh, it's always been good. Uh, he was one of the guys I was chatting to when he came in. Yeah, I went to Boston, and I went to a... We just happened to walk into a bar where there was a beer festival on with, like, 80 different beers, and I'd come from here where there was maybe three on. <laughs> I was like, how is this? Amazing. Yeah, so I had this kind of like, well, why doesn't this happen back here? But actually it was, I think. It's just it was hard to find. Mm. Like, you know, even when you discovered those 80 beers in Boston, there were probably more than three in England, but, you know, you had to go to the right place or the right festival yeah. to find them. Um, and so, the, but there again actually wasn't quite the same. It's not entirely true to say that all beer here was old-fashioned and, and stuck in a particular real ale tradition but a lot of it was and a lot of a lot of the energy that went into something that wasn't a mass market mass-produced commercial lager was tied up in a quintessentially English real ale tradition um, and I suppose when I started this there was you know the first few breweries had just started trying to do something in a different idiom which 
became, I suppose, more associated with an American way of doing things. Mm -hmm. But the American way of doing things is also just taking other ideas and Americanizing them and throwing them back. You know, so a lot of the American styles are pale ale, porter, stout, IPA, which are you know they're, they're all from here. They're mostly directly from London. Um, so how did so you that was two thousand and seven. No. Okay. So I came back and I homebrewed for two years. Was the other thing I found obviously was that I couldn't find the beers that I had enjoyed drinking here. So, with a couple of exceptions, which were very hard to find. Um, and although I did discover some American beers, I was quite excited to find them. And then I remember drinking them, going, "That's not right." And then it took me a long time to figure out it was just well, it's eight months old. You know, it's just been sitting around. It's been travelled halfway around the world. It's not been refrigerated. Yeah. Okay, so you can't just ship beer around the world. That was also quite a good lesson to learn. I mean, our focus now is very much on things local. Mm-hmm. Like I get asked a lot to send beer to the states. <laughs> not even for a festival. Not so you even don't for export to China then? No, <laughs> no. no. <coughs> Italy is probably as far as it goes. So yeah, two yeah, two years home brewing, and then and then we started up down in Druid Street, um, a six hundred liter kit. Um, without really much formal training, or which was kind of okay then. The thing is, if I know if I knew then what I know now, I don't think I could have done it. You'd be paralyzed. Yeah, well, I mean, you're just doing everything wrong the whole time. But if you don't know any better, you're kind of, ah, well, that's fine. <laughs> you know, now you look at go, some very close to the edge sort of decisions made. Not, not in terms of anything, it's just in terms of beer quality and mm. stuff like this, you know. So. And maybe things get easier, you know, if you have things that are built for purpose, you can have a slightly easier to make beer on something that's properly built rather than some mm. sort of slightly... Cobbled together. Yeah. But you know, there's a certain magic to that. So and how long did it? How long thing. did it take before you were like, "Yeah, no, that's good." Or other people. The first batch was pretty good. The first batch was pretty good. I mean, I made some good homebrews, but um, actually, not very many pale ale or IPAs homebrew. They're much harder to get a pale ale or an IPA right on the homebrew scale. Um, the first batch was pretty good. I think we drank the whole batch. We didn't sell any of it, 600 liters. But that was also a great learning experience because it was the first time in my life I had enough beer to drink a bottle a day for a year or whatever. I mean, by then it was really old, but you, you know, you get to see this on a homebrew level. If you had a bad batch, you just sat there forever and you never, you know, never finished it. And if it was good, it was so it was gone probably before it was even quite at its peak. You know, you were just so excited. Um, so you got to taste its whole lifespan. Yeah, yeah. that <coughs> talks more than most yeah. anything else. That particular batch. But I don't know. You know, if I taste it now, I don't know what I think of it. I don't think I'd like it very much. But you know, the world has changed. My taste buds have changed. You know, there's lots of things that I would have enjoyed then. But you can't really, even if you taste them now, you can't. They're not the same. They might have changed, or mm. have you changed? You know. A beer drunk. <laughs> well, I can remember my first sour beer, like we were saying. 
What the hell are your body, your, your taste buds go? Are you joking? Sec- <laughs> what was that? <laughs> and now you, you know, we just, um, yeah, it's fantastic. we knock them back. Fantastic. So one of the things I always love about you guys is, 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 the, is the way that you, I've read a couple of interviews with you where you've talked about growth and your approach to, you know, the, 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 like if you were, the conventional business model is by now, <coughs> you know, you'd be in a massive place, you'd be exporting all over the place, you'd be eyeing all those different markets and, and you've taken an approach very much on the, in business program you said something along the lines of, well if we grew we'd have to work harder and we quite like it like it is and we know all of our customers and we know everyone who works and it works for us and why would we want to why would we want to grow and, and that kind of reimagining of a business which has a sense of its appropriate scale and its and its belonging in a place is something that, that I've always been really kind of refreshed and inspired by I wonder if you might just talk about that a little bit thank you for putting it so eloquently I don't know if I, <laughs> <laughs> if I quite live up to that. Um, I mean, it comes down to a lot of things. But I mean, you know, I mean, and especially in this day and age, the last year or two years when, you know, this, the, the focus on the disparity between people who have something and who are wealthy and you know the people who don't is just mm. suddenly for a long time it seems to have been maybe getting a bit better but recently it's just and I think you know just thinking in business in terms of something that can grow ad infinitum just tends towards a concentration of money power capital into mm. smaller and smaller number of hands because you know even a small brewery being bought out by a big one, being bought out by a bigger one, and then suddenly, you know, you have people like, you know, you have massive breweries like Heineken or Carls- Carlsberg, for example, owning a tiny brewery like London Fields, you know, mm. just around the corner. You know, I mean. I mean, first of all, most of the big breweries are trying to get the small breweries out of business, so that doesn't go down that well I mean but that, I'm sorry I mean that's not quite the question you asked that's more probably the question of, of selling out to a bigger brewery which is a slightly separate thing um, well, I guess on the question of scale it's in terms of that kind of separation between the haves and the haves not it kind of if you can make something on a you know on a scale that works for everybody working here I think everybody working here is looked after very well and I think everybody's happy to stay here we've had one person leave in the last five years you know just growing slowly and slowly but I think it's a working environment it's quite healthy and part of it is possibly because we haven't gone to the scale where I mean breweries that get bigger then tend to have to start working shifts so you have kind of night shifts early morning shifts like I said we all start at the same time finish at the same time so you have that kind of thing of a common rhythm um, it's, it's not kind of compartmentalized you know it's not kind of just a, it's not just a job and it's not just a shift mm-hmm. I mean there's still ways around it to make life interesting and work enjoyable even if you are shift brewing but it, it becomes well I mean there's different scales so the scales of production and 
just human scale. So scale to production, I think, you know, we brew once a day, five days a week. So it's not a massive amount of production. Mm. I think it means we can focus our attention on the beer, that particular batch properly. Like I said, we all take turns brewing. So whoever's brewing, you know, we generally on average brew once every two weeks, which means we're not the most efficient brewers. Because if you did everything every day, you'd be a lot more efficient. However, you know, Joby brewing today, this is her first brew in two weeks. Everybody looks forward to their brew day. Everybody really enjoys it. Everybody wants to be that. So it was a bit disappointing if you don't get to brew as often as you like, but when you do, you're on it. So, you know, I feel that that energy that people carry towards what they do is then focused into that, you know, that day, because it's their day to brew. Now, nobody has these ideas that this is my beer, you know, because somebody else has looked after the cellaring, somebody else has looked after the yeast, somebody else has bottled it, somebody else has put it in cakes, somebody else has sold it. You know, we've all done everything for all the beers. It's, it's not as if it is your beer if you brewed it today. You but you up. still have a little bit of ownership over it. You know. yeah. Joby gets to choose the hops today, so she went, ah, here, these, never tried them before, what will they be like? Yeah. So already you're kind of, you're not making a beer towards a preconceived idea of what that beer is going to taste like. Yes, we have a pale ale that we make all the time. This will be another pale ale. But we want this, we want these hops to speak for themselves. We don't want them to match up with a preconceived standard. So I like to think that that gives people a focus to allow their, whatever they do to kind of evolve and grow mm. rather than hit targets. Mm. And I think that mindset is quite important um, because targets are you know, limiting and you know, they restrict what you can become. The other thing about scale is, well, I don't know, did I call it humanity earlier? That's a bit excessive. But in 14 of us, we can all know each other really well and mm -hmm. trust each other. And like I said, we all take turns brewing. We all take turns bottling. We all take turns driving the forklift. We all take turns answering the telephone. Some people are not very good with tough. That's, <laughs> that's okay. Um, some people have certain specializations and certain experience which allows them to fit more comfortably into certain roles or have a certain expertise which allows them to help develop things like people with certain brewing experience can help more obviously with technical aspects of brewing processes but in general our system is relatively flat um, which means that the responsibility is shared between all of us. And you also have a lot more kind of resilience in there in terms of this. Oh, if somebody, if you lose someone. If you lose someone, you don't lose your brewer and you can't brew. Or yeah. Your phone, you know, no one can answer the phone. Yeah. <laughs> sometimes it's not a, you know, sometimes, sometimes we wish nobody would answer the phone. <laughs> no, no, that's not entirely true. The phone's there. Anyway, um, you're right. It, it helps in that terms of structure because there isn't so much of a kind of a, you know, you don't have these linchpins that when mm. you pull them out, the system falls apart. Um, and the responsibility you shared, so that obviously, you know, you don't have a sales team shouting at a brewing team for, you know, not making the beer they needed to sell. You know, everybody understands what the other person is doing. Mm. So hopefully we all act in a way that allows, you know, things to function, you know. And how important is it being like a, um, a London brewery that's based in and really connected to London, that you're not just exporting all over, you're not doing like brew dog and selling all over the place and exporting to China or whatever, but that you'll really kind of belong here, thank you, in this place and of this place. Thank you. 
well, there's two or three things. Um, the first one I kind of mentioned to you earlier was about our immediate neighborhood. So with my background in cheese, we moved down here six years ago with a community of like-minded businesses, friends. Most of us, actually all, almost all of us used to work at Neil's Yard. All of us did work at Burr Market. Um, moving down here to find space that we could rent collectively and do things together. Um, so, yeah, we've got the ham and cheese company there. That side is the um, charcuterie people. Um, uh, and we've got a little bread pedra bakery. On the other side, we've got Mons Cheese. We've got Pantarella uh, vegetable people. Bill Capcasey, more vegetable people. Greek people. Ice cream, natural wine, natural wine, natural wine. Use your dairy. That's our extended family. Mm. So, you know, this morning the butchers have been in, the bread guys have been in, you know, one looking for coffee, the other one looking for beer. And we've gone next door, you know, get, we get a loaf of stout bread every Monday from the bakery. They make bread using your stouts. They do, yeah, yeah. I mean, we could do other things. We just get croissants on Fridays because if you have croissants every day, then... <laughs> you can't move. <laughs> there is that. Although, uh, they're tasty. I mean, our lunch involves cheese and bread from you know our neighbours. Um, so we, yeah. I mean, it's. I mean, your world is only as rich as the connections you make. Mm -hmm. I mean, in your line of work with what you were talking Absolutely. about in terms of transitions, it's you know that's. So. I mean, but there are various different levels of networks because obviously we have a direct connection with people that are next door, the people you see every day. It's like your neighbors at home when you need to borrow a cup of tea or whatever, you just drop in and say hello. You know, that's, that makes up the fabric of who you are. Same thing down here. I mean, I've worked at Neil's Yard Dairy since 99, so I worked there for 10 years and I had a cheese store in the Burr Market. And now the same people are, if not exactly the same, it's the same family. Um, we all share certain interests and we share certain goals and we, we care about the same things. Um, it's very helpful that we also share the same customers quite often. So if somebody comes down to visit, like, you know, mm. say it's a restaurant, we'll take them next door to visit the ham guys or the cheese guys if they don't know them or, or vice versa. We'll share deliveries on occasions because we have vehicles going to the same ways. You know. um, we work with each other for events and things like that. Mm. So it's, um, but more than that, it's just, it's our community. We all, you know, it helps that you know everybody's pretty much amongst the best at what they do. So if you get cheese from Neil's Yard, it's the best British cheese you can get. You know, Mons have the best French cheese that's around. You know, the, the bakeries, have, I mean, they have the best croissants and some of the best bread in the world. Um, so you have somebody next door who you, you respect, that you like working with, and you you know we enjoy each other's company. And you know, every once in a while, once or twice a year, we'll we'll have a just little neighborhood party, and those things are, those things are fun. But also on a bigger scale, we also, I mean, I don't know, I think now, probably 11, 12 breweries in Birmingham, um, which is its own issue, but you know, that's another community that we're involved in. Mm. So whenever we need to borrow some yeast or we run out of bottle caps or whatever, we'll call Brew by Numbers or Partisan because they're our closest brewers on the other side and they're our best friends. Mm. Partisan. We've known since 
he was working redemption. So five, six years, we gave our old burrito partisan when he just started. Um, I love what they do. I love the beer they make. I think they're really, really cool people. So it's yeah, it's great. They make more sort of. Well, sure, they're changing now. Yeah, I love the. One of the one things you said in that in business program actually was that you wanted that the idea wasn't to become the biggest and only brewery in London, but was to was to be part of and support an ecosystem of breweries all across the city. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, I, you said there's like twelve breweries in Bermondsey or something. Is is there a stage when there's too many breweries in London? In London, no. No, Bermondsey, no. But there, there, there are. Sorry, what you were saying about... I mean, having a lot of smallish things is healthier for an economy. Mm. Big companies tend to just siphon off money and give it to shareholders. You know, anything spent from this small local business, money stays in that economy. You know, it turns around. Um, most people are then more responsible, more accountable for their actions and tend to take greater care of their neighbours, their environment, their community, etc. Even in a place as... Um, Sometimes seems a bit cold, which London does. I mean, I like to think we've helped certain people with certain things in other breweries. I mean, it's it's great. Mm. Uh, London can handle a lot more. I mean, also considering, I mean, most breweries in London are still quite small. Mm. I mean, I suppose by now we're not that close to being in the biggest anymore, but. Um, but the vast majority uh, sort of I'd say 50, 60 out of 100 are you know, probably about five barrel systems are smaller so you know, mm, kind yeah. of quarter of our size in terms of maybe producing less than that um, so you can have a massive number of breweries but they're all producing a, if they're all producing a small amount of beer mm, then it's mm. you know, it doesn't, doesn't really matter I mean it can be confusing for a customer but that's a different thing so, yeah, that's a different question there's a long way to go yet of oh in terms of volume in terms no. of market share there's still a lot oh yeah yeah I mean all of us London breweries together probably come up to maybe a percent of something of beer that's sold in London yeah. I just made that up I have no idea if that's anywhere near accurate it might be less but then all the craft you know craft breweries together and you know probably excluding Brewdog make up quite a bit less than Fuller's make in a year you know mm -hmm. I'm, I'm, I'm not this is not to disparage Fuller's I think they're great I think I think what they do is excellent. I have a lot of time for them. Um, they have a lot of integrity. Um, but you know, compared to them, everything else is just tiny and insignificant. Um, and even they don't, you know, have, you know, their beer is quite a lot around them, but it's by no means ubiquitous or, or everywhere, as much as they might like it to be. That's interesting. Um, the question of there being too many is is. It's, it's less about too many, it's more about how and where <coughs> and what are the circumstances that might cause that to happen or, or what happens if that does happen. So, for example, on Saturdays, you mentioned our tap room before that we closed down. The reason we closed down is because there suddenly opened up all these other breweries in Bermondsey and it became a destination where people come down and have a drink. Um, and that kind of interfered with our relationship with our neighbours. And it kind of interfered with our kind of ability to focus on what we thought was important. So if we were expending a lot of energy pouring beers 
basically throwing out pints, managing a queue that's 30 minutes long, managing a door, you know, being a doorman, it, it's taking a lot of energy that we thought best use elsewhere. It was so busy and crowded, we couldn't give people the experience that we thought they deserved, that we thought our beer deserved, that we wanted, you know. It became a place that we wouldn't come and drink too much. I mean, the railway arch itself is, you know, kind of bare, empty. You know, we would just repurpose part of the brewery to turn into a drinking hall. But it wasn't ever made for that, so it was never that comfortable. So that point of there being too many breweries on Saturday mornings, afternoons in Bermondsey. Well, maybe it wasn't too much. I mean, we're, maybe it was a positive decision to close, you know. But it did affect us. Mm-hmm. Um, and that kind of becomes a little bit about the... Sometimes you feel the hype overtakes things. Mm-hmm. It happens with beers, it happens themselves, it happens with limited releases, it happens with certain breweries. And, you know, when suddenly everyone wants to come down and, you know, drink a pint of beer at 10 breweries in Bermondsey, it's like, I, you know, I have more respect for my beer than that, so can you just leave me out? Which is a shame because actually 90% of the people that came down didn't have that attitude, but, you know, if 10% of the people do, then, you know, or it's a stag dues or whatever that come down and see this is a kind of a challenge pint of the strongest beer at 10 different breweries along, you know, it's... At 9 o'clock in the morning. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah, well we opened at time, so it's not their fault, it's our <laughs> fault. Probably did quite things down. What do you, what is it for you about the, the craft beer movement that, like, compared to brewing in the 70s and 80s, one of the things I love about the whole craft beer thing is, is, is that there's a lot of space for imagination in it and it's almost like your <laughs> kind of your your um, success in a sense is in part due to you know, like, it were, like in the 70s and 80s your success was on that you managed to make a beer that tasted exactly the same wherever you drank it wherever you in the world and the craft beer thing you know it brings together the the, the, the design and the flavours and the unusual ingredients and the whole and in, as a as a space or another industry is the wrong word what is it about it that, that that has kind of cultivated that space in which the more imaginative you are the more successful you're going to be if you agree with that that's the case <laughs> I don't remember what I said in my email to you, but I remember having a slight issue with the word, not an issue with word imagination, but a, a kind of a difficulty in inserting ourselves into that conversation. Um, and it may not, it may not be the fault of the word, uh, yeah, well, it just, not imagination per se, but like for example, the word creativity is used so badly these days yes. that I can't use it anymore. Yes. Same with innovation. In a horror beer. Yes. <laughs> so you understand when I think imagination, some people will use that in a similar way. Yeah. So people will put um, whatever ridiculous ingredient in beer and call it creative or call it innovative or call There's it imaginative. Lovely, you know, Ursula Le Guin had that lovely saying where she used to say the word creativity has been so co-opted by, by big industry and corporations that it's now meaningless but they can't have imagination. 
She's did like, she say that? Yes, yeah, she's really? like, back off. Okay. That's ours. You can't oh, have So that. she died last week, didn't she? She did, yeah. So that, that's where I come at it from. That's oh, still our word. No, no, I have... Um, <laughs> yeah, no, I just... I'm just waiting for my son to be old enough to read the Earth Sea. <laughs> He's not quite there, I don't think yet, but I, can, I can't remember. That's good. No, I'm all for fighting for words. Um, but I think maybe the thing is that I haven't actually given an imagination and that, that much examination, if you know what I mean, okay. in terms of trying to think of what, what imagination requires. Well, I guess if you not use I... the term imagination, would you, I mean, maybe if I just kind of rephrase it as a slightly mm. bolder, emptier kind of question would be uh, or a statement from my side would be I think I tried to allude to it earlier that I'm not sure we brew with any imagination that I think that I think the resulting beer is not necessarily made to a mental template it's more of a assemblage in this case of ingredients with certain principles around how we do things which allow things to go and express themselves I mean your your idea of imagination may, may vary so if you could explain yours at some point that would actually also be helpful but I don't like the versions of kind of I mean, we do a lot of things really regimentedly in a really purposeful fashion, but actually I don't think brewing is necessarily about mastery or control. And sometimes, some people's version of imagination is kind of the realization of an idea. I don't think we work that way. I think we try to make fertile grounds for things to then grow. So it's more about evolution and actually coming and going beyond where we might expect something to be. So, for example, with you know us using a new hop variety, it's not about it becoming a pale ale that tastes of a certain thing. It's about what will this beer be? How can we best get these hops to express themselves? They might be completely not something we would enjoy, but at least if it expresses itself clearly, then we can appreciate that. Then we may not use it anymore. Or it's kind of like, well, that has certain characteristics. Yes, we will kind of manipulate our recipe but in order to get the best out of its expression. But we, we tied, I think we tried to allow it to dictate to us, mm. the ingredients mm. to mm. dictate to us, the processes to dictate to us what needs to be done. We select certain things according to certain criteria. I don't know if imagination is the right word to describe that process, if you know what I mean. I think it's not bad. Okay. I think because I, th I think for me it's like about that. One of the things that, <coughs> that I'm looking at is... is is that we need we need kind of what what if spaces, and actually in, in that actually in our daily life, when we're at school, there's no space for what if spaces anymore. In university, there's no space for people sitting down and saying what no. if. There's no. very little in our own home lives. People are so tired. They're so busy. They're mm. so time starved, mm. and actually the only way we're going to find a way through the chaos of the next twenty thirty years is by finding spaces where we sit down and go well what if. 
So actually, okay. for what I hear when, when I hear you explaining that, is that actually what you've done, unlike, so I went to visit Vocation Brewery. Oh, nice. And in Vocation, it felt like they, I mean, they make some stunning beers up there. But I went up and bought like some of the beers that I, I bought to you, you know, and so, you know, well, the way we run the new line is 70% of our time we're making our core beers, 30% we say to Matt, the head brewer, just do, just play, you know. And then we have the white label series that I've with the short runs of things. Yeah. So, and so we, we make design that what if space in, and it felt like at vocation, like they'd, they'd mastered some great recipes about four years ago, and now they were just a factory making those seven or eight mm. beers, boff, boff, boff. Whereas actually, you know, it feels like what you've, you've left some what if space in terms of what you yeah, do. Yeah, I, 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 I know what you mean. But at the same time, we don't do anything off-piste. We don't add any flavorings to beers as far as we can tell. I mean, okay, we added sour cherries to that one. That was quite obvious. Um, I, I dislike assemblages of things that you kind of, that I feel are forced. Now, why I would put fruit in something and not herbs, spices, chocolate, mm. vanilla, coffee, you know. In most of those cases, we have done it before. And we've probably gone, yeah. <laughs> I mean, but then again, maybe that's just a badly realized, you know, that doesn't mean the idea is flawed. It yeah. Maybe we just didn't do it very well. But we haven't put anything in beer apart from fruit mm. for a very long time but it and that we don't do anything really much outside of our core beers I mean but I think I mean the other thing to that is for us they represent a certain a certain honesty I, suppose. I mean that, that's what we enjoy so I mean it's not to say that we wouldn't enjoy somebody you know a different style of beer but it's like well, if we want another saison, you know, that's something different than we make, then we'll go to Burning Sky and get a saison from there. You know. If we want to have a, you know, a Cascale bitter, then yeah, we'll, we'll go to Redemption and get one there. You know, we will we'll have a you know pint of Fuller. So you know, we we don't need to actually master all those styles. It's actually probably quite difficult. Um, But I think with the changing the recipe thing, each well changing the hops, for example, each time we brew does mm. allow us not to fall into the rhythm of producing by rote. And also the fact that it's a different brewer every day. So nobody has enough time to actually even get into the rote and it changes. Mm -hmm. um, I, I'd call it a certain openness. I don't know if what if is going to, what if kind of, to me, what if kind of calls for a, like an answer. Like the imaginative bit would be to fill in that what if space. So if you're writing or you're thinking, it's like, what if that, that, that happened? And then you imagine, well, then, then this might happen or then that might happen. And that would be imaginative. I, I, I think, I, I would think that our process here is, is open in the what if sense, but I don't know if it necessarily allows the inhabitation of that space with the imagination to a certain so it's degree. not like if you look at someone like you know cloud water where they just they don't have core beers they're just it's just different stuff coming out all the time yeah they you said know? that that they've changed a bit but that's fine i mean they will evolve yeah. and we all will you yeah, know yeah. i think they thought that and then they had one style that just caught people's imagination and stuck yeah. their fang and then nobody would let shut up <laughs> like they might not want to brew any more double IPAs, but the, the world is screaming at them yeah, for it, yeah, yeah. which is so, and, and they enjoy it. They like that. Mm. Um, so I think they're quite happy. Um, and it's doing something for them. You know, it, it's, it's what's driving them to be 
who they are. Um, <laughs> causing probably immense amounts of pain at the same time, but <laughs> it's just difficult beers to make. And uh, anyway, no, there, I mean there are lots of there are lots of breweries that specialize in things. The Do thing is also that you know, what there's like I don't know like Buxton and Omnipolo. Have you come across them? Yeah, so I Buxton. went to that bar, Omnipolo bar in. Did Stockholm you? Okay. Well, there you go. That there's an example of yeah, and that, I mean you know, I know the whippy, them. I respect them. With I, the whippy head yes, on exactly. The top. Or like you know the chocolate sprinkles, or you know beers with certain ingredients, or just kind of this cross cross referencing between like a dessert and a beer, mm. or a, you know whatever a style, a yogurt, a Mr. Whippy, a creme brulee, mango, mango lassi, exactly. Um, and they do it with a joyous sense of humor you know this, this, the way they look the style it's, mm. it's kind of it works mm. but I mean it's not I mean I, I like the fact that these things exist it probably comes from a slightly more traditional mm. idea of drinking you know, I, I don't find most of those beers have drinkability. Most times when ingredients are in beer, once the ingredient becomes perceptible, it tends to dominate. And once mm. it becomes a dominant flavor, you know, every sip gets harder and harder. Same with too much sweetness, same with lots of things. Well, bitterness is the opposite. You know, things can be way too bitter, but you actually keep drinking because the bitterness makes you thirsty, so you drink more. But, I mean, that's another argument. I don't think our beers are generally too bitter. But... I sometimes struggle with the drinkability side of things, but mm. then maybe, you know, so who, maybe who, I'm who an alcoholic. Are people, who, who are the people who you would look at in, uh, as being, you mentioned Omnipolo, you know, are there, are there people out there who you think are really making beers that are going off into some really interesting directions but aren't too much? Who are the people you look to and you go, they've nailed it? Your heroes. Oh yeah, but the, the ones, the ones that, <laughs> and they're probably quite obvious. But a lot of the Belgian tradition of lambic skurs, spontaneous fermentation, these kind of inspired beers like our you know, mm. sour cherry are, are have been adding things into beer for you know. In the case of Cantillon, you know, hundred whatever years. I mean, and that tradition goes back and back and back. And even if they do something new, it still tends to be very rooted in an old-fashioned way of doing things. Um, but the thing is, you know, none of this adding of things into beer is really in any way new. You know, I, I don't think anybody in the last few hundred years has come up with anything that hasn't already been done before. Mm. I mean, Mr. Whippy. Perhaps marsh, I don't think three hundred marshmallows exactly. <laughs> Anything, you know, there's a certain techniques that weren't around, but uh, you know, there's probably some caveman who froze some beer somewhere and it kind of came out pretty close, but was unable to repeat the exercise. Yeah, so actually, most imagination is just really finding the right person to copy. Um, but you could argue that most of the history of mankind has been a series of imitations. Often, 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 you know, when you misinterpret something and come up with a brilliant idea yes. wrongly, it's often that. <laughs> it often seems the mechanism by which uh, we evolve. Um, 
It could also be a kind of a... It could also be dude just getting old. I mean, not old, but just... Like I said, we put vanilla in something. We put coffee in something once, twice. Vanilla once. Cocoa, maybe once. Maybe we've done those things. It's like a you know maybe ten years ago I would have drunk a lot more double IPAs than I do now because you know, yeah. I don't like them. But a you know they're very strong and b they're really intensely you know and c I realized I'm looking for something say more drinkable mm. and actually it comes down to maybe just having learned also a lot more about brewing that you kind of realize maybe that certain kind of simplicity. Is something that I really appreciate. Mm. Or clarity of flavors. Mm. So you can get clarity of flavors in a big beer, but actually there's usually a hell of a lot going on. So, you know, a simple cask beer like Redemption Trinity or something, three percent, or like our table beer or you know, Terrace Bulba from Belgium or you know, just that a saison that's four and a half, five percent. Mm. A really good Pilsner, you know, the cleanest and crispest, you know, thing is just maybe that makes me happier. Yeah. That I actually you know, rather than the new things being imaginative, it's kind of, mm. I, I'm a quite into the old fashioned things, just, but just a sign of something really well made, mm. Mm. something that cares about what they do, something who makes beer with a lot of attention to detail, fastidiousness, mm. but producing something delicate, so the flavors are delicate rather than, and then, you know, the delicacy and that doesn't preclude interesting things being added, but you know, you can have some Burning Sky, for example, will make a beer, say, with a big one like a gooseberry or elderflower lemongrass. No, lemongrass is partisan, but partisan are actually another good example where they will use flavors, but they'll be just like below the threshold of tasting them. So they make a saison with lemon and thyme. And I don't usually like saisons, apart from ours. I don't like, I don't like flavorings, but they're all just under what you notice okay. so that they add to the beer and make it nice. brilliant, but you don't taste them. Because as soon as you taste time in something, it's just like, oh, you know, I got, you know, it just becomes mm. a chore to get through. Burning Sky do something similar. It's like rose hips or, you know, gooseberries, things that are in there, kind of below the level of what they become. Do you, think we can, do you think we can get to a stage where beer has a terroir in the same way that wine does? Do you think we can have like sort of regional Regional, no. Brewery specific, yes. I think, I mean, you can kind of detect certain characteristics from each different brewery, especially the ones that kind of use more mixed culture fermentations, like, so our barrels have a, you know, we use, for our saison, we use our own kind of house blend of yeast. And our barrels, we put other beer in our barrels, other people's ish. And it tends to come out tasting like one of our barrel of saisons. Okay. Um, but, uh, yeah. It doesn't kind of brewing doesn't suit terroir in the same way wine does because like there's a lot more processing of the grains from where they're grown yeah. and they also tend to be moved. Mm -hmm. So uh, part of the essence of wine is that you know you, this is your parcel of land you harvest and then you make wine there. Whereas you know, we get more. I mean, it's all from the same place, but it's up in Norfolk and it comes you know, the whole swathes of the country. They might be blending different batches in together with others, so yeah. it might express Norfolk barley. But it's also been cooked and malted, which kind of changes the essence of it. 
compared to what it's like in Rome. So you don't get the same direct transmission, at least in terms of mm. terroir I mean, coming from the earth. Whether it means coming from, you know, the hands of the people who made it. There is, I don't know, I still think so. Mm -hmm. We're doing a beer at the moment with there's a, uh, a farm on the edge of town who are growing this particular variety of wheat and we're going to be brewing using that, make a saison with the wheat. Wow, he's getting something to malt it for you. What is he doing? I can't remember what he's doing. I don't know. Anyway, he's doing something with this particular wheat, which is, uh, which is just grown up the road. Okay. Nice. So it's nice to play with. And you yeah. do and with some spelt, some local spelt, a okay. local mill who are starting to. You've got sharpens, don't you, down there? Did you yeah, get spelt from them? Because they grow a lot of spelt. Uh, we use their wine casks from their vineyard. Do they have a vineyard too? Yeah, yeah. Okay. They make cheese okay. and they make. Yes. And, 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 they and, and, and they, yeah, they have a really good vineyard actually. Okay. So we use some of their some of their casks. Good. Where do you think it all might in your in your dreams? If you looked, you know, you said there's already twelve in Bermondsey. And you know, you talked before about this idea of an ecosystem of people brewing across the city. In your in your uh, uh, most uh, delirious sort of dreams well, about how the future, the happy ones, mm -hmm. like in 10, 15 years' time, what could it, what could it, where could all of this get to? Um, there's not much space in happy dreams anymore in this world because um, you kind of. I'm not talking about the breweries in Burgundy. I mean, half of them I don't necessarily know people directly involved. Or. But you know, generally speaking, about brewing in anywhere, is there's a lot of people in, you know, who are not necessarily in it for making good beer, which is, mm. you know, this doesn't really. Is that because oh, well. there's a lot of money coming into it? That's well, about I don't know. There's also there's a perhaps a perception. To that. I don't know if that's necessarily the case. But there are people who are you know, maybe are building brands to, to sell them on, or you know, looking for ways of making money out of things rather than paying attention to what's the most important. But uh, but uh, there are. I mean, if we kind of consider, say, the Americans to be slightly ahead in terms of a certain growth curve, mm. it, it is quite... Well, I don't, it's not necessarily inevitable, but it's not far off very probable reality for... Whenever I've been to New York, I've stayed in Brooklyn, and basically every bar in Brooklyn will have Brooklyn Lager. Actually, the ones that don't have it will always have something better, generally. So that will be your lowest common mm. denominator. And for you to start with that as a baseline, no matter where you are, you could turn up and get a Brooklyn Lager. It's not too bad. Mm. I, mean, mm. I mean, they're you know they're not the smallest and the most independent thing anymore, but they're, you know they're still based in Brooklyn, and they make a beer that's enjoyed by that neighborhood. No, I mean, I don't drink any Brooklyn beers over here very much. Why would I? Mm. But there, it makes perfect sense. And it will come to the point where that will happen here. Mm -hmm. I don't know, be it something like Beaver Town or whoever, for Pure, that will get to that scale of being able, or maybe it would be better if they were here. Um, and there already are, you know, people like Fuller's or Meantime who will have that covered. So soon, you know, you'll get, a, hopefully, you'll get at least a decent London brew 
pale ale Pilsner as a standard as a standard in everywhere you went to and that's still a long way off mm. so that's you know that whole that's all still to come um, but on the rosier side of the picture you know you could there may be places like you can use the model like I mean the thing is it might not work in other cities because it's not but then it'd be great but somewhere like Portland, Oregon where they drink more craft beer than mass-produced stuff. So that's a world worth fighting for. Mm -hmm. you, might, you know, people have such a strong relationship with craft beer, and most of it is locally produced. I mean, they have almost as many breweries in Portland as they have here in London. And it's mm -hmm. maybe a tenth of the site. I don't know. Depends on how you count it. Um, that's the sort of that's right. positive future. Yeah, yeah. Most of the breweries are quite small. Maybe a neighborhood bar, they have a little tap room, they sell most of the stuff there. Some are pretty big. The big successful ones got bought by ABM. Oh, 